If you're accepting that your set of actions propagate out as causes of future actions for yourself and others, then everything you do takes on a kind of weight. Acting slightly more compassionately, being more understanding, being more reasonable, that propagates out. Hello listeners, and welcome back to Bit of a Tangent. I'm Jared, and joining me as always is Jean-Luc. He's currently studying artificial intelligence, he's really into the quantified self-movement, and he's always an all-around fascinating guy, and I just love talking to him. This is part two of our series on free will. In this episode, we reconcile how it is that we can feel like we have free will, even when we don't. We give an evolutionary argument for why this might be the case, and we show how knowing this makes us more compassionate people who are paradoxically better at achieving our goals. Along the way, we explain what a Bayesian network is and why you should care about yours. Yes, you have a Bayesian network, you just don't know it yet. And we give an introduction to some of the key ideas and concepts in the field of reinforcement learning, which is a kind of AI, and how we can use these concepts to clarify our view of ourselves and of the world. Before we dive in, I want to have a bit of an aside with you, the listeners. You see, I've been thinking about podcasts in general lately, and the fact that at this point, every podcast you listen to is practically begging you to rate them on iTunes or share them with a friend. And obviously you can't do that for everything that you listen to. And in some sense, everything, every podcast, video, and tweet is competing for your attention. Now, the two most valuable things in the world are your time and the quality of attention you can pay to that time. So Thank you for choosing to listen here. Jean-Luc and I don't take it for granted. And our promise to you is that we will keep trying to bring you conversations that are genuinely enjoyable and that really are useful. So rather than putting the responsibility on you to share this, what I'm saying now is that it's our responsibility to create something beautiful, something that deserves to be shared. So hold us accountable to that. Anyway, without further ado, here's the episode of Bit of a Tangent. But yeah, and so the point I was going to make uh, just before we decided to click record was that um, I always sort of, I think Sam Harris definitely expresses himself way better. He's the he's the better rhetorician than yeah. uh, Daniel Dennett. And so as a result, I, I think I maybe too quickly dismissed Dennett's argument as him saying, we don't have free will, but you shouldn't tell people that because it's dangerous. Mm. Whereas what he's saying is a lot more nuanced than that. So I, I was listening to a reading of the essay that he wrote and Sam Harris published on his, on Sam Harris's website, like attacking Sam Harris's book, free will. <clears throat> and 
it's not so much that he persuaded me as much as he just he lowered my confidence in Sam Harris's total argument, um, which I think then opened the door for Sean Carroll's argument, which now that I've looked into it seemed to map much more to my personal intuitions, All right. which is not a good reason to believe anything um, sort of a priori. But I think there's some interesting territory to get into. And I mean, yeah. I'm going to make a guess as to what you're going to say, but you'll yeah. correct me as we go. But I think where this might tie in is like we both, despite not believing in this ultimate notion of free will, we also both really like podcasts by Jocko Willink and Tim mm. Ferriss and Joe Rogan and all these guys who are saying like, get up, get after it, <laughs> do something difficult, right? And this yeah. seems to be like, well, it, it seems to contradict this notion of, well, you're not in control, so why bother to listen? And Absolutely. I don't think that actually either of us do see a split there. Like I can fully integrate those messages and not have to have free will. And mm. I will make the case for why I think that's the correct position to hold here. And I think, well, where we're going to be going with this whole conversation is now that we've laid out some of the arguments and we can, we'll make maybe a few minutes to close those off, right? Because we kind of got interrupted in the middle of it, but we can close off our final arguments, let's say. And then what I think will be most useful is we say, look, even if you still disagree with us, how about for the next hour or whatever, just pretend that we're in a universe where this is true, right? Even if you disagree, and if you agree, well, that's already so. And let's just discuss some of the logical implications of this. And wherever that leaves us at the end, well, at least we've got some new and interesting perspectives. 100%. Cool. Just to summarize what we spoke about in the last discussion, and at least this is the way I summarized it and the way it made sense in my mind, you've got this main argument that we focused on, which has most recently been propagated by Sam Harris uh, in his work on free will from the book of the same name um, and in many of his talks. And it's essentially the argument from determinism right? Which says, look at the universe. Physics is deterministic, uh, like classical mechanical physics, and quantum mechanics is pretty much random. And either way, those things don't lead, once scaled up to the level of the brain, to your ability to have any influence over them, right? They are either deterministic or random, and either way, it's out of your control. Right. Then we also looked at some experimental evidence where Subjects uh, were seated in a laboratory and monitored with an EEG, and the researchers are able to preempt their subjective experience of having made a decision with some neural patterns that show that a decision arrives to you out of seemingly nowhere long before you feel like you've made a decision. And they had a lot of predictive power in this as well. And then we did some sort of like phenomenological thought experiments. So the thing of picking any movie you like. And we observed that only some movies occur to you. Like others didn't even occur to you to choose from. So in that sense, your choice was not free. And the ones that occurred to you seem to just manifest from somewhere in your mind. And then which one out of those you chose specifically, you weren't really free to choose either. One just occurred to you to be the one. And... Even if asked for a justification, and even if you were able to give a justification as to why you picked that, 
we spoke about the split brain patients and how that justification can just be some post hoc rationalization that your brain is doing to reduce cognitive dissonance. And another strong sort of line of argumentation here was the disease cases. So we looked at, aside from split brain patients, we looked at like the case of like if someone's a violent psychopath, mass murderer, but they've actually just got this brain tumor that is impinging on their amygdala and causing them to have uncontrollable fits of rage and how we would not hold that person responsible if without that tumor they would have been otherwise peaceful regular citizens right we would be able to excuse their actions to some extent because it was out of their control in the same way and we use this example we wouldn't expect a double amputee to stand up when we walk in the room to greet us it it, it was just physically not in their control and uh, just to preempt where i think this conversation is going to go right and to maybe preempt some objections here excusing the person with the brain tumor and i think in that thought experiment we kind of just kept asking well how small can this tumor get right and i think that's an important line of reasoning but either way excusing the person in the sense of not holding them ultimately responsible doesn't mean we don't want to prevent violent psychopaths from running around society and absolutely choosing not to hold someone morally responsible for some action doesn't mean we choose to do nothing at all about it right and then that distinction right this thing of choosing to do nothing and, and choosing in a very specific sense here is going to be a major theme of today and i think that's where the meat of our intuitions come in with regards to things like taking responsibility and and doing the best you can yes absolutely so just to sort of round off that whole sam harris determinism nugget Essentially, you have the conclusion that you are not the author of your own thoughts, which I believe is Harris's way of phrasing it, that these thoughts come to you from somewhere in your brain, but you don't have choice over them, right? You don't have choice over your desires or what occurs to you in in a very strong sense. Yeah. But then we also know as reasonable, well-informed people that everything else is kind of out of your control as well, right? You don't choose your genetics. You don't choose your upbringing. You don't choose many aspects or any aspects of being here on earth and how it plays out, how, how, how the dice is rolled. And so because those were not yours to choose and because every choice in quotes that you feel you have made along the way wasn't freely yours to make and was not something you authored, then we can't really blame you or credit you with where you are now. We can't really blame or credit anyone with where they are now from that line of reasoning. If you're looking at at T0, you could not set the parameters. You couldn't choose your genetics. You couldn't choose your family, anything. And at T0, the choices you could make were not actual choices. Then at T1, it was purely predetermined and therefore the same thing happens at T1 to T2 and to T3. And so at TN, you have just arrived there. And anyone else starting at T0 with the same parameters would have just been in exactly the same position, according to this deterministic line of reasoning. And the moral implication of this that I think we sort of briefly touched on, but didn't really get to explore, and we'll certainly explore now, is that you discover once you've accepted this idea that it's kind of hard to hold a grudge. And I think that's a, a good springboard for, for diving into the conversation. 
before we do that, do you mind if I just quickly round out that discussion as I see it and then let's let's hit the yeah, Good idea. Yeah, nice. I think you've covered everything that we covered last episode, but there are a few things you said there, such as um, you referred to just this idea that you don't choose your thoughts. And this is still very difficult, I think, to get a grip on. And we're making the mistake sometimes, I think, of assuming that every listener is on the same page as us, where, like, if you've been disagreeing with us from the start, and we say that, well, you're definitely not going to be convinced, and you're probably going to be even less convinced, because as that person would see it, we're just making these wild, speculative claims and really not substantiating anything. So I just want to try and give a little bit more credence there and outline what I think is a subtlety, which again gets masked by the effect of using words specifically in this case, but they're the same words that we use more generally for different purposes in like wider conversations and society. So just as like our last or possibly last reference to an interesting medical case here, there's a great NPR Radiolab episode on loops. And in this, they have a woman who unfortunately has a, she suddenly one day finds herself with a brain condition where she will just repeat the same set of words and actions over and over again. And the reason I really like this example is because, you know, when we say like, you don't really get to choose how something plays out. Well, this is great evidence of just that idea, right? This person, whatever's happening at the level of their brain, something is happening that is causing that to just loop around. And so she starts saying a sentence and and she starts talking to her daughter and she reaches the end of the tape essentially and just restarts it. And and she does this, I think, for almost 24 hours. And I I would suggest listening to the Radiolab episode. I think it's just called Loops, but we'll link it in the show notes. For They have some recordings of this woman and it's spooky and interesting and fascinating. And I really, really love the whole thing. But it does highlight, I think, this importance of if your brain was set up in the same state and firing in the same way, you wouldn't be able to control the next sentence, right? I mean, was she free to change the words that came next in the sentence? Well, clearly not. And shouting at her for repeating herself would be a moral failing on our part. Mm. Then the second thing, which you said there, right, of, of not choosing your thoughts, I think it ties quite usefully into meditation and the, the general philosophy of things always arising by some set of prior causes and us not having as much control, right? And, and that sentence or that word not having control will be the trigger point for the people who agree with us are already saying, yeah, well, I know what you mean by control here. But the people who disagree are saying, how can you reference control and free will in the same sentence, right? And in, in some sense, this argument gets bogged down by not being clear what we mean here. So there's another concept that Sam Harris uses quite often and I think it's subtle and important and he will often say something like it is always now and what he's saying right is the ability to feel the sense of free will is essentially the feeling that you could do otherwise it's that moment of indecision or agonizing over a decision right it's sitting there and saying I want to go here not there I want to watch this movie not that movie And that feeling is basically a projection of your mind into the future. You're thinking, well, there are two possible futures here, one in which I turn left and one in which I turn right. But the reason that the phrase 
it is always now is so important is because Harris is pointing out something important. And that is that that feeling, right, that the future could be different is itself just another thought that is present right now. And his point is this future you're imagining, right, or these two opposing futures, you never arrive there. In some sense, you are always just present in the immediate moment. And whatever is arising in your mind is still just a feature of the immediate. So in that sense, the future is determined, but the future as the entity that we're conceptualizing it as, it doesn't really exist in that way. It's not a set of possibilities. One of those is, is going to play out. And our ability to imagine it, to imagine it being different, that says a lot more about our neurology at the time. It doesn't say anything really about what is going to happen. And so a lot of what we're going to be talking today when we get into morality around this will be the difference between voluntary and involuntary action as well. And a lot of that has to do with the ability to conceptualize at the moment of making a decision an alternative. But again, just the subtlety of realizing that the appearance or the feeling of there being an alternative way things could go, well, you didn't author that either. And if that wasn't there, it would just feel like you were pressing on with your life. So that's that's kind of a subtlety that is worth flagging and hopefully we'll work that into the conversation as we go. Yeah, I like how you segue into that with meditation because I think anyone who's practiced meditation in any serious way is well aware that thoughts just arise in your consciousness. And so this is just uh, overlooking your second point, but yeah, the the phenomenon of noticing that thoughts just come to you from somewhere and then to let them go by is definitely something you notice quite early on in a disciplined meditation practice. So I think that was a, is a, an important point that I had overlooked in my summary. And yes, the ability to visualize different possibilities, as you say, is integral to, I think, the discussion we'll have the rest of this conversation. So, so I mean, let's just jump into that. We're now sitting at a place where we both disavowed this overarching ability to do different, right? We're in some sense saying that if you find yourself on the most benign thing, doing something you didn't want to do before, eating a cookie when you started a diet, or if you are the person who unfortunately has some disorder in their brain that is making them act like a psychopathic killer, what are we saying about that morally? Because in some sense, if we're saying you're not responsible for that, then is there any sense of responsibility? And are we saying that that's excusable? Because, you know, these are important questions to ask here. You know, what do people take away if this is true? I think another aspect of it is also that you go, actually, and then why does any of that matter? Because even if we do say that we can excuse everything morally, then it's not like we can choose to do anything about it because we have no free will. So we're just we're just playing out some pre-written drama on a cosmic scale without any ability to influence it. And it's really like the worst kind of torturous mental prison. And it almost links to an absurdist philosophy in some sense, or like a la Albert Camus. It's almost like you've accepted now that there might be no intrinsic meaning, right? How can there be some intrinsic meaning if everything is predetermined to some sense, right? And you don't actually have free will. Like things can feel emotionally like they mean something to you, but you know that's just chemistry and neurons firing. You have no agency and so they cannot be choice and they cannot be meaning. But once you accept that, then you're left with like a few options, right? So you can just give up and commit suicide. But in the case of free will, you 
don't really have the free will to choose that if it's predetermined. So <laughs> that doesn't really work so well. The second option was to, would be to embrace some kind of false meaning framework. Again, not something you would have a choice over if you accept that you don't have free will. But I think also for a lot of people, that isn't a great option, right? That just means blindly following some philosophical belief or some religious doctrine that you know to not be accurate purely as a scaffolding of meaning that you can use to delude yourself. And the third would be to just accept the impossibility of it and live in rebellion of it, right? This is Camus' absurdist proclamation. And I think that is an important feeling or sentiment to embrace going forward. Because if you bear with us for a little while here, everything will go from seeming very bleak to potentially optimistic or at the very least fascinating. And I think I think once you've accepted that there's no free will in the sense that you thought there was before, what's often referred to as like a libertarian free will, not to be associated with the political inclination, then things get kind of dark for a little bit because you feel like you've lost something and you've lost some meaning. So if you're in that situation, which is definitely how I felt the first time I was exposed to a lot of these arguments is just hang tight for a second. Just go, you know what, fuck it and <laughs> and strap in for the ride. It's worth mentioning if we're wrong, right? If, if we are somehow mistaken and there, there's some level at which the brain can instantiate this free will that... I think most people walk around in their heads feeling like they have, well, then nothing changes. But in some sense, despite the fact that we've now spent a couple of hours podcasting about this, if we're right, it's also kind of inconsequential, at least at the level of your experience, right? Like not that much changes. In the meditative sense, maybe you can start to notice this. But for the person who is now feeling acutely uncomfortable, who's feeling like, oh no, like what does this imply for what my life means? Is there such thing as meaning... All of that, first of all, it's just important to notice that nothing has actually changed. Like if we were right and, and you have no free will and now you suddenly know this and you are feeling uncomfortable, well, it's important to realize that before you knew this, it was still true. And if you think about that, that means that every experience you've had in your life up to this point, every moment of joy and every moment of suffering, every moment of love amongst friends and family, all of that still happened and still felt meaningful. And so... In some sense, whatever we're saying here doesn't change the ability to experience positive emotions. And at least in my view, it only heightens your compassion for when things go wrong. And I think we should talk about that. And just to sum up that thought, though, on why it's not worth actually worrying if this is true, is, is a concept that is often touted on Less Wrong and in Eliezer Yadkowski's sequences, which he calls the Litany of Gendlin, right? And it comes from Eugene Gendlin. And I've got it here because I think it's just great for everyone to, to hear. And it goes, what is true is already so. Owning up to it doesn't make it worse. Not being open to it doesn't make it go away. And because it is true, it is what is there to be interacted with. Anything untrue isn't there to be lived. People can stand what is true, for they are already enduring it. It's this idea of you, you flip a coin and catch it so you haven't seen the outcome yet. But the outcome is already determined, right? Like now, knowing that it's some specific outcome that you perhaps didn't want doesn't change the fact that it's already there. It, it only can empower you to accept it. Like living in blind denial doesn't make it not true. Exactly. So 
The reason I say that this heightens compassion is because it makes you realize that all of the bad things that have ever happened, well, there was some proximate cause of them being bad. And it's this notion that there are causes that is actually, I think, the empowering thing about viewing the world like this. Because in the same way that you know, when you fail at your diet because you kept cookies in the cupboard, and then you realize, oh, if I didn't have those cookies there, I'm much less likely to snack. And then you remove them, right? What you've done is you've identified a cause. So you're not sitting there saying, ah, oh, I'm a weak person. You're just saying, oh, well, there's a cause. And my brain, which evolved on the plains of Africa and is highly likely to seek calorie-dense foods, well, of course, this poor fallible thing is going to eat the cookies if they're there. And so removing them is just a clever way to prevent that. And so... With all of this, essentially what we get down to is looking at the causes of behavior. And when you realize that a lot of those causes aren't in our control, you can develop a lot of compassion for people and for yourself when you go wrong. And you can also develop more humility because you realize that a lot of the things that go right, the fact that you are an intelligent, interesting person, all of your achievements, you also realize that many of the causes of that weren't under your control. Once you start viewing the world more as a set of causes and effects, you, A, become much more compassionate and much more humble, and B, you start to look at things more strategically. Instead of partitioning moral judgment, you come up with strategies that could prevent it in future. And I think this is an incredibly powerful thing and probably the most valuable side effect of the deterministic view that we have no free will. And like I think this is what makes it truly powerful, is the, the resulting mind shift that you have. Right. I mean, so this is it, right? When I said earlier that I don't find this view incompatible with a good life and I don't find it incompatible with wanting more for myself, this is just in the sense that once you accept that we are these brains which take in some inputs and give some outputs well then the logical thing to do is to try and give the best set of inputs and and hope for good outputs and this you, you kind of get a little bit of a, a snake eating its own tail effect here where it's like well what made you want to get the best inputs right and i'm happy to bite the bullet there and say well i'm just lucky the person whose life is is not getting any better well, in some sense, they are unlucky in that they either haven't come across the right inspiration or something about their neurochemistry is not right. And we should be compassionate to them. But, you know, so, so first of all, yes, once you realize that you're not the author of much of what is good, but also not of, of much of what is bad, you can start to say, well, first of all, let's take the, the really bad cases, right? The people who have brain tumors that are pressing on their amygdala, however small that subset of the population is but i think the important thing is if you extend that thought experiment you realize that well anyone who is going to go and shoot up a school there's something happening in their brain and it's not good and there's two important things here one the reason why the brain tumor is less worrying than the person who without a brain tumor goes and shoots a school is because no free will need be involved, but we can say something about what that person is likely to do in the future. In some sense, we're just drawing an inference based on looking at the state of that person's brain, or at least what we can infer about their brain based on their actions. So the person who with no apparent tumor or brain disease 
goes and shoots up the school, the reason that we say, let's put that person in prison, well, there are a few, right? The one is because we want to ensure that they can't do that again. And, and what they're essentially signaling by having an otherwise normal life and physiology is that something in them says that they are likely to repeat that behavior. So in that sense, it's logical to want to put them away. The second thing we're doing is we're setting a societal precedent where we're saying we will not tolerate that behavior. And that way we're trying to disincentivize future behavior that is similar to that by other people. And that's the key thing, right? Is once you're viewing brains as mechanisms that are responsive to causes, then it's logical to ask, well, how can we disincentivize bad behavior and incentivize good behavior? And there's nothing incoherent about that when it comes to free will. And the, the problem is, or not so much the problem, but what's important to notice, right, is there are already strong incentives set up in society not to murder people, right? Most people know that if caught, you will go to prison and be severely punished, depending on where you are and what the punishment for murder is. But if you think about it, right, the fact that the person who does end up murdering someone was completely unresponsive to society's set of incentives makes them almost the unluckiest person of all. If you think about it, the fact that you and I, we know that murder is wrong and we respond to that knowledge by not murdering people. I'm not saying that either of us have contemplated this, but what I'm pointing out here is we know there's a strong negative penalty and whatever the case may be, we have not murdered anyone precisely because in some sense our brains are responsive to incentives. But if it were the case that for some reason one of us had ended up committing a murder, we would have been the unlucky person, the unlucky one in however many thousand that ends up committing a murder, whose brain could fully see the disincentive and ignore it. And, and that is, again, just bad luck. Perhaps not potentially as unlucky as the person who got murdered, but, 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 <laughs> but, actually, but actually closer than most people would like to admit, I think. And, and a useful exercise here that I know Sam Harris has, has walked through before is just to take any bad person and imagine them as a child. So, I mean, I think he uses the example of Saddam Hussein, right? And, and he will say, well, no one here has much sympathy for that person, right? We don't have much compassion. And most people could acknowledge him as a, a really good example of just a bad person. But if you think about it, right? If you imagine that person at age five, well, that child was the unlucky child that in adulthood would become this terrible hated person. And so you can ask the question, well, does the child deserve our compassion? You know, does baby Hitler deserve any sort of compassion? And from our point of view, if they were always going to develop into the people they were because of the set of stimuli and environments they were exposed to and their genes and the people around them, well, you know, the fact that they were going to do these terrible things, it doesn't excuse it. And it doesn't mean that as a society, we don't want to prevent that from happening. But they, not being the author of all of those experiences, they're kind of objects of compassion, as difficult as that may be to swallow, right? And I find myself thinking about this often, you know, when someone does something that I don't like, or I find morally reprehensible, there's the intrinsic human reaction to react with disgust and moral approbation, to sort of look at it and say, you terrible, worthless human being. Yeah, you stole, so we'll cut off your hand. You murdered, so we'll put you to death. You know, you, you raped, so we'll castrate you. But after a few months or years of 
thinking about the world in this more causal deterministic way, that stops becoming your first inclination. Or it might even still be, right, in, in some of the most uh, strong cases. So maybe, maybe you get better at, you know, not worrying too much when someone cuts you off in traffic. But I would bet, for myself at least, you know, if someone committed grave bodily harm to me, my initial reaction is probably not going to be compassion. I mean, that's hardwired into you to, to defend yourself and to be aggressive and to have an attack response or a flee response, right? And, and it's difficult, but the sort of logical implication of the view that we're putting forth is this person, for a lot of reasons, which they didn't choose, ended up in a situation where they did something horrible. And it's not that we don't want to disincentivize this, right? We do. And we want to set up every possible societal incentive to change how people similar to that person in the future will react in that situation. But for that person in that situation, the fact that they have now harmed me, well, we can wish it was otherwise, but because it's not, maybe the only response is still anger in the sense that we want to signal that we don't want further incidents of this type. But them themselves, we can be compassionate to while still imposing societal penalties on. Exactly. So I think just for completeness, there is a little bit of nuance here, right? Like if someone comes up to you and starts trying to beat you to death you should defend yourself and you should do bodily harm to them in an effort to defend yourself but that is a different thing from someone comes up to you beats you to the edge of death and you spend two years recovering and then you go and systematically like murder every one of their family and torch their house and like that's a very different thing to defending yourself in the moment stopping someone else doing something bad to you is not the same as mob justice or long-term grudges or retribution that is disproportionate and ultimately unhelpful. Right. And actually, you've hit on such an important point there, which is when people hear the free will thing that we're espousing, they go, oh, well, you know, since everything that's going to happen just happens, whatever's going to happen in my life, well, I might as well just sit here and wait for it. But that breaks down in the sense that as you just said there, right? if someone came up to you and started attacking you, it's not logical to say, well, there's no free will here, so I'm just going to sit here and take it. You're going to react, and you're going to react to that proximate cause. Their, their action is the cause of your behavior. And so it's completely rational, even when things are deterministic, to, first of all, try and impose causes of future behavior. If you know that keeping cookies in your house makes it more likely that you are going to break your diet, it's completely rational to remove the cookies it's completely rational to react to violence by trying to defend yourself. So this whole view on free will doesn't preclude action. And it certainly doesn't say, well, go sit in a dark room and wait for the good things or bad things to happen. Like that, that reaction is, is to misinterpret the implications of this. Because at the end of the day, what causes someone to become successful, what causes someone to be great, well, those are still definite causes. Now, you can't help it if you fail to meet those, and you should be compassionate to yourself for that. But that doesn't mean that the experience of trying isn't a major thing here. And a lot of the confusion here as well comes up from the difference between the feeling of voluntary and involuntary action. So at the level of the brain, the reason that we ascribe free will when we say I want to move my hand and pick up the coffee mug next to me, and there is always a coffee mug next to me, the reason that we can say, well, that's a voluntary action, right? And the reason people can confuse this to free will versus, let's say, someone with a movement disorder. You could imagine Parkinson's or 
any other number of related disorders where my hand spontaneously jerks forward and knocks over the coffee cup. We will, first of all, excuse the, the second case, right? And say, well, there was no free will in particular, right? They have a disease and something is going wrong with the firing in their brain. So now why is that different from the first case? Well, at the level of the brain, what's happening is movement. And I'm going to make yet another promise that we're going to go much deeper into this in our episode on predictive processing. But movement could be thought of as your brain, first of all, making a prediction that that is what's going to happen. So your brain says, it is likely that I'm going to move the hand to the coffee cup. Then some set of neurons fire and the hand moves there, right? Fulfilling that prediction. And so the reason that it feels voluntary is because the experience as it played out matched the initial prediction. So the reason then that you get a difference between involuntary behaviors is if my hand just was to suddenly, let's say I had a mini seizure right now, right? And my hand jerked to the left and knocked the coffee cup. Well, because I didn't predict the seizure, right? I didn't predict the movement. And so that would be flagged as an error message within my brain. And that error message will say, oh, involuntary movement. And so I think even though this is a very small example, it's a really important one because it can be quite instructive to people to realize what it means for something to feel voluntary. And to notice that voluntary and involuntary, rather than being categories, are more like feelings that arrive, right? It's the feeling of having preempted a reaction or, or, or an action rather. And the same thing goes for when we feel like we're making a choice. What we're really doing is we are predicting states about the world and the future, given what we know about it now. And it's a feeling that arises. And once you make the choice, you feel as if there's something irrevocable that's happened maybe. But again, they're, they're all just feelings that are happening right now. And first of all, the alternate didn't exist. And, and second of all, that feeling that it was a choice you were making is, is analogous to that feeling that, oh, I made a voluntary movement. It's just the matching of what actually happens to a prior prediction of it. And that prediction, again, is important to notice. You didn't author in, in some important sense. Yeah, I think this is a good place to jump into what has recently made me feel a little bit uncertain about my views on free will again. And I originally came across Sam Harris's arguments for this about four or five years ago, found them very persuasive, had that sort of curve of getting that you had to get over where it's kind of like you feel like everything's meaningless for a little bit, but then you, you realize that there's actually now a whole new causal world that you can interact with where moral judgment becomes less your inclination and causal strategizing becomes your, your go-to response to things you do and don't like. And I think that's very useful. And my opinion that what is known as like libertarian free will is an illusion is as strong as ever, right? And I think there are very few people who are informed on this or public intellectuals who talk about this that still believe and aren't convinced by the evidence that libertarian free will is an illusion. And, and, and that's the sense of free will that we've largely been talking about until now, right? This idea of thoughts just arise in, in your consciousness, right? You are not entirely in control of retrieving all possibilities at all times and making a selection from them. So I think that's pretty much knocked down. And, and I would hope that if you've listened to this and the previous discussions on free will, that we have done a sufficient presentation of the evidence that if you were ever going to be convinced by the evidence, you are convinced by it now. But here's where it gets a little bit nuanced. 
and 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 nuanced in the sense that philosophers and neuroscientists and people have been arguing about this for a very long time and they talk past each other even in technical writing so th there is a lot of nuance going on here and and it's a difficult thing to get to but i think it's quite important because for me whilst i had accepted that libertarian free will was an illusion and whilst i had embraced the causal deterministic repercussions of that i still felt as though some kind of double think was going on like there was still i think you referred to it earlier as like the snake eating its own tail in some sense of all of this like recursive process of if there's no free will then you view the world as causal but you then don't have the free will to actually do anything about it and so there's still that meaninglessness and so you almost operate on it at one level of abstraction right where you you act as though you're a free agent but as though no one else is in some sense. And so th there was a sense in which I would look at the lunch menu and feel as though I had free will. I would try and make rational decisions about my life and feel as though I had exerted some kind of free will. And that was sort of one mode. But at the same time, I would have sat down and, you know, espoused the same ideas that I am now saying that, yeah, we don't actually have free will and not judging other people because it's unlikely or almost impossible that you would have done any differently if we put you in exactly the same set of starting conditions. And and I think that that made me feel a bit uncomfortable. There was some cognitive dissonance there. I felt like I had almost these kind of two belief sets running in tandem and depending on the situation was employing one or the other. And I'm the kind of person who values having a belief network that has, has well-propagated beliefs, right? So if there's an update somewhere, I want it to propagate throughout my belief network if it is a valid belief. That is such an important point. I feel like it deserves a little bit of further explanation because you are suffering a little bit from not everyone knows what you know and... It was more meant as a, as a sort of throwaway uh, tidbit for the most enthusiastic Bayesians and uh, less wrongers out there. Well, throwaway or not, it's interesting. <laughs> right. So, yeah, I mean, imagine some belief that you have and then some other piece of data or evidence or another belief that you have as two nodes, two circles. And now you can connect them with some, some edge, some line to sort of make the beginnings of a graph and you can imagine that if you just keep doing this and connecting beliefs and their relationships you get a network and i mean this is a, a woeful oversimplification but essentially now you have a set of data points and the relationships between them and now you make some observation in reality let's say that the pavement is wet and it's localized to one of these nodes or some of these nodes. But what you should ideally do is then propagate it through your belief network such that all the requisite changes and updates are made, right? So for instance, if you were of the belief that the pavement being wet means that it has rained, but now you've taken in the data that it hasn't rained and the pavement is wet, you now need to propagate through your belief network that there is not an inverse relationship between the pavement being wet and it having rained. Right. So now your model might still hold that raining causes the pavement to be wet. But now your belief that that is a reversible statement is no longer valid. As in, you can always infer that if the pavement is wet, it has rained. You need to be able to say, oh, that's actually not a, a valid inference. Yes, because there might be sprinklers or something like that. Right. So now you've made this observation that it didn't rain and the pavement is wet. And now you need to propagate this through your belief network. And if you do that properly, then you 
update your your full model of the world but this takes actual work and so an example of like not propagating through a belief network would be someone who's a fundamentalist of some kind of religion and then learns something doing a scientific experiment but yet compartmentalizes these things enough and doesn't actually propagate beliefs across their entire view of the world and so as a result has this sort of bifurcation of their belief set which makes it very hard to have a good predictive model of things anyway nice bit of a tangent coming back to that i so i i am the kind of person who aspires to propagate beliefs through my network well and this feeling of this double think of holding two beliefs and using them at different times was uncomfortable for me and i couldn't really put my finger on it and i knew that there existed this other group of people and they're you know the majority i think of philosophers who focus on free will are actually compatibilists and most notably like daniel dennett is is an example of this and i had previously dismissed his arguments too easily and i had thought that what he was saying was yes people don't have free will i agree with you sam harris but don't tell them that because that's bad for society whereas sam harris is going you don't have free will and you need to know this because that's good for society and i had assumed that that was all there was to it but there seems to be a lot more nuance there and the more i've looked into it the more complex it gets right so just the basic primer on general views about compatibilism is that compatibilism agrees that there is no libertarian free will it's a it's a widely held illusion and and compatibilism agrees on that it's like yes the world is deterministic and you have no libertarian free will you are not the author of your thoughts you couldn't have done otherwise in some important sense yes but it does believe that determinism is still compatible with human freedom right so you are not the author of your own thoughts but you are still free and that is where their definition of free will comes from. And at first, this may seem like a bait and switch kind of thing where they just change the terminology yeah. on you. And it seems a bit illegitimate. But then Dan Dennett did make the point that for a, a long time, people thought, you know, the earth was flat. And then we had to inform people that the earth was round. Uh, in the modern world, we still are struggling to explain and educate everyone about the differences between mass and weight for instance like people use those terms interchangeably or incorrectly all the time right. how much do you weigh when you mean what is your mass right and some of that is just colloquial speak but some people genuinely many people genuinely don't understand the distinctions and so in in, in that case what he's saying is yes people have the wrong view about free will and we need to give them the right view about free will and we don't do that by just you know inventing a new term or allowing people to persist with this illusion you have to actively do a good job of educating people about what it really means and the difference between a libertarian free will and actual human freedom so that that won me over a little to his point that there is a difference and that there's a valid reason for using the term free will differently to how the rest of society is using it but i'm also wary that there is a lot of academies involved in this and philosophy professors are maybe not the best people to be commenting on like the dialogue that most of society should be using the thing is for me at least it's fine to say that it's compatible with human freedom but again that word is being used in such an unhelpful way there because you're yeah, free it's so until vague you as to be like, meaningless you're free until a neuron fires and you do a thing and then later you know, it's just yeah it's it's just too nebulous to be of use i find yes and and this is why there are so many different fractured subsets of the compatibilists 
So just that, I mean, that was just the core belief, right? They all have different reasons for why they say this, to be fair to them, right? But for me, at least, the way that I find it helpful to think about this is just that there are causes, and as intelligent agents, we are responsive to them. Some of them we don't get to choose, and some of them we have control over in the sense that there is the preserved option of choosing between different modes of being. But again, the fact that you are in that moment could go either way in some sense. Well, the fact that you arrived there was not of your choosing. And whichever one you choose, again, will not be of that libertarian sense of choosing. But that doesn't make it rational to squirrel yourself away and just wait for good things to happen or cringe in fear of the bad ones. Yeah. I think this is why I can sometimes view this as even more important as a belief. Because if you're accepting that your set of actions propagate out as causes of future actions for yourself and others, then everything you do takes on a kind of weight. It means that when you drive through the city in a setting in which we would all condemn the person who has road rage as being this terrible, angry person, right? Instead of just realizing, oh, well, put an evolved hominid in a small cramped metal box in 35 degree heat, Celsius, I might add, because we have American listeners. And well, they turn into this angry, raging maniac. Well, the thing is, if you realize that that is just how hominids such as ourselves tend to react in that situation, then you can also realize that acting slightly more compassionately, being more understanding, being more reasonable, that propagates out. And it means that in the future, because other causally responsive systems, other brains that respond to proximate causes have come in contact with slightly more compassion and slightly more reasonableness, well, as a cause, those actions are more likely to make those brains also in turn respond in compassionate, good ways. And so instead of destroying the hope for all meaning by saying there's no free will, I find that just thinking in terms of causes means that you can realize that the things you're doing have a tremendous ability to cause good and bad and because you realize that the agents that respond to this are in some sense helplessly responding to proximate causes, you can realize the significance of your actions, whereas before you might have dismissed it as, well, I'm being an asshole, but these people are free to either ignore me or to be assholes in return. And realizing that you being an asshole is causing that person to be an asshole, that can be the proximate incentive that says to you, well, maybe I just shouldn't be an asshole. And that's the snake eating its own tail, right? Exactly. But in the same way that the negativity and the being an asshole to everyone else would have propagated before, now the equanimity and non-judgmentalism can propagate, which adds, and with no fear of the shameless plug, slack to the system. You, you now have a system in which every interaction between two people is smoothed by the fact that they are more tolerant of what would otherwise be cause for irritation, outrage, anger, frustration, right? Like the waitress is slightly sarcastic with you at, at the restaurant. And normally that would make you really upset and demand to see the manager and shout, which would make the manager really upset. And then he would go home and like beat his kid. And then she wouldn't grow up to be the doctor that she'd want to, you know, like it, it's all of these kind of uh, effects in these hypothetical scenarios. But whereas if you just realize that maybe the waitress just got dumped by her boyfriend and she's really upset. And so you would then just not react to it at all. And it would end there. Right. And so now in every interaction, you have this. What we're sort of left with here is ultimately a worldview which can be the cause of increased compassion in your life. And it can also be the cause 
of a more rational approach to how you get things done, right? You can just realize things that are likely to cause future behavior. And it can also cause you to accept those causes that you had no control over. I mean, some people have variants of the dopamine receptor that make them more likely to engage in compulsive behavior. And if those people find themselves having to go to a recovery group because they have a gambling addiction or an alcohol addiction, well, there is at least some reasonable sense in which you can say you were unfortunate and you can try and design better incentives around that, right? You can try and figure out, given what we know about this person's neurophysiology, how could we make it that despite their dopamine receptors, they don't end up with compulsive gambling disorders in the same way, right? That reasonable people don't say, oh, well, this person has a disability or uses a wheelchair. We say, well, how can we engineer society so that it's not a factor anymore? You can build a ramp for someone in a wheelchair and you can build ramps for people with dopamine receptor variants. And maybe that's actually the metaphor that we're going to use to carry this home here, because what we're always trying to do in a healthy, mature, and wise society is build these metaphorical ramps for all of us, for all of our genetic and cultural histories that we didn't choose to enable us to live the best life possible. That's a good analogy. I think that summarizes the sentiment very nicely, but I still had that cognitive dissonance and it still didn't sit well with me. And this is where we enter with the idea I had while cycling home yesterday and Sean Carroll and his views. And I think if you're, if you're ready to jump into all of this, I'm very excited for this because this is where it gets super fun. The idea I had while cycling home yesterday was what if these two views are not contradicting beliefs, but what if one of them, at least one of them, the view that I have of my everyday life, the view that I have while picking something from the lunch menu, is actually just a useful model which I employ for practical purposes. What do I mean by this? Well, when you drive a car, you're not thinking about the chemical reactions going on that allow combustion to take place. You're not thinking about all the mechanical systems that are involved every time you change a gear, apply more throttle, turn the steering wheel. You just have a very simple model of a vehicle in your mind and that model says when you turn the wheel to the left, the car goes to the left and vice versa. And, and, and it has a basic idea of the mechanics of the system. This is why we can then transpose you to a simulator, which doesn't have the underlying mechanics and chemical reactions, but has the same high level mechanics that you're accustomed to. And you can drive the car in the game just fine. And so I started thinking, what if this view of free will, and, and I think at this point, that's a good idea to switch to the term agency. So we're getting away from libertarian free will. We've dismissed that pretty much entirely. Now we're talking about like human, human freedom. Now I'm going to use the term agency, the ability to make decisions given some policy, right? And I'm, I'm just straight up stealing from the discipline of, of reinforcement learning here. And while I realize that they, that may initially preclude much of the audience or some of the audience, I think the ideas are good enough at making this sensible that it's worth explaining. And the switch to the term agency is useful because it gives us the idea of a free agent. It doesn't have to be a human. It can be anything. Anything that can be intelligent, anything that has some kind of goals or desires and can take in input from the world and produce outputs. And Here's the interesting thing. A Roomba, those little vacuum cleaners that autonomously drive around and clean your floor, that in some sense, at least as, as far as like classical AI goes, is an agent. And the way it models and deals with the world 
it is able to have agency. It is able to, in quotes, make choices given its values and its policy, right? It, it's, uh, its policy is it's essentially just like its way of doing things in the world, its set of rules in the same way that humans have policies in our institutions, right? So when the Roomba detects some sensory input, it then looks at what its options are. So let's say it, it notices that there's something close by on the left, like maybe a wall or something. It now then looks at the possible scope of options. And, and this includes, okay, well, like I can go forward, I can go left, I can reverse, I can still like uh, go closer towards the object to make sure I like get all the, the dust from the edges. But this is also taking into account its model or its map rather of the room from past experiences. And all of this goes into this really complicated function that allows it to decide which of those choices is better, right? So in some sense, it doesn't have the freedom to pick any choice because one of them just wins out in the function. There's some value that returns a maximum reward. And so it, it will pick that. Exactly. Yeah. So in some sense, it's just as sort of mechanical and deterministic as our brain when something just arises in our consciousness. And even obviously more so, right? Because it is a robot. It's just easy to grasp. Yeah. It's, it's even more low level. And, and yet we still say the agent chooses some option mm. given its policy, right? And so that, and everyone who studies AI or reinforcement learning is, is accepting the fact that that is just a model that we are using to think about the world. Okay. Right? It, it, we're, not, we're not actually saying like this is the fundamental nature of reality. We're just using this as a good enough approximation or abstraction or metaphor that allows us to discuss these things and make your Roomba better at not getting stuck and cleaning your whole floor. Right. And okay. the idea that occurred to me yesterday is that I am a free agent in the same sense that an intelligent system like a Roomba might be a free agent in that I have some goals, I have some policy that can be changed over time. And then what I do is I, in quotes, choose the best option given the data I have from my sensory inputs, my internal map of the world and the possible outputs that I can exert. And then I choose that option and perform the corresponding outputs so it might be to choose whether i pick up my coffee cup or my water bottle and then actually doing that based on the input being that the room is quite hot so i prefer water given my policy right so it's just a model of the world and i think i'm really okay with that well let me just say because people will maybe react negatively to where you say well you just choose the best option given your information at the time right and people will just point to all the ways which we fail and say well your analogy breaks down because clearly sometimes we're making suboptimal choices. But what I would just add there to kind of try and cancel out that move is when you're thinking about the available information, right? The choice to eat the cookie, even though you're on a diet, doesn't seem optimal from your very high level goals. But according to a body that has evolved on a savanna where food was scarce and where nutrient dense food was always a good thing, that actually might be a perfectly reasonable base plan. Given some model in which your willpower is limited or in some way restricted, it might be better to concede and eat the cookie than to give in to some adulterous behavior or something, you know, yeah. like it, it might be the lesser of two evils. And if you're going to have a failure in willpower, it's better to eat the cookie, but still go to gym and be nice to everyone around you and not cheat on your taxes than to do all those negative things but not eat the cookie, right? So it's like the, the, the function that determines the highest value item is very complicated and incorporates a lot of things. And with humans, it's a lot more complicated than the Roomba, 
Right. And therefore, there's a lot more like biochemical factors and emotions and various other things. But it still all goes into what I'm calling in this metaphor, the function, like the utility function or the uh, expected value function. And the other important thing in these systems is that generally you model them with imperfect information Mm. and uncertainty and sensor noise which is exactly how humans work. And all of these things make it much harder to pick the right choice and require more like sugar coating of the mathematics to protect you from getting stuck in various bad choices. And so like this becomes a whole topic in and of itself and a fascinating one. So if it interests you, let us know and we'll do a whole top, a whole podcast episode on it. But what I'm trying to get at here is that you can use this as an instrument this model can be used just like we use the model of our of a vehicle as a tool that makes it easier to act in our lives. And given that we have imperfect information, given that we have limited processing power and some of these decisions require NP-hard computational abilities, given that, doing a reasonably good, efficient computation, given all the noise and everything like that, and coming out with a choice in air quotes... Yeah is exactly what these agent-based systems are doing. And so I think that that model is a very nice way of thinking about agency or in the uh, compatibilist framework, free will. Actually, as you were saying that, I realized something else, which is what you call the best option. That best is only from the perspective of satisfying the criteria of that function, right? It's again, it's it's disconnected from what you from outside of the system might term best in some sort of normative or, or moral way. So like a really good example that makes this concrete is in some reinforcement learning paradigms, you've got a little stick figure or robot and the researchers tell it to walk across the room. Then they impose a criterion and they say, your new value function gets extra reward for minimizing the amount of time that you spend on each leg. And so now what the researchers are trying to do is get the little agent to learn to walk on three legs instead of four. So that they're trying to maybe get it to learn that behavior. But what can happen, it's quite funny to watch videos of this, is the agent can just realize, oh, well, I get more reward if I don't touch the ground with my legs. And it realizes that the penalty for using its leg is only given when the bottom of its foot touches the floor. And so you get these great videos of the robot just flipping itself onto its back and walking on the back of its legs, right? Because it doesn't get any negative penalty for that. And the reason I'm just bringing that up is because it's a great example of where following some sort of policy can have these unintuitive results which are based under that policy but they're not based in the sense that it's not what the researcher wanted but it is based from the naive point of view of being in that agent's brain so to speak at that time that is the best almost logical action and we don't blame the little four-legged creature inside our simulation for doing that we're not like ah you're an evil creature for (laughs) having done that and flipped on your back you are morally contemptuous We just go, oh, okay, I see what happened here. We didn't design this properly. And then we try better. Right. Right. And that's, and that's another tie in back to the Harris's deterministic causal way of looking at the world and what we were saying earlier about designing ramps for our societies. And, and it also incorporates this, this, yeah, this mental model of being an intelligent agent that makes choices in quotes and has agency. 
right? And I, and, and I find this to be really satisfying, not just because it gets rid of my cognitive dissonance. And I tend to be wary when something easily just gets rid of my cognitive dissonance because mm. it's often a rationalization or, or inaccurate. But having given it some thoughts and then also seen that a similar argument has been made from slightly different angles by the physicist and podcaster Sean Carroll, it seems that this is an idea that is really useful. And also, I mean, we're, we're fans of mental models, as any uh, long-time listener will know. And so essentially what this boils down to is like th this model of being an agent and having agency is useful when you're picking something off the lunch menu. It's less useful when you're talking about how to design your societies to minimize violence aggression and various other maladies of, of the modern world and so it, it, it's a it's now it now becomes a tool and this is this is the point that i was getting at it's a it's an instrument we're not saying that it represents base reality most things don't in fact we've spoken about it in a previous episode but maybe even our reality as we perceive it doesn't represent base reality whatsoever even our physical and mathematical models but we can take this as far as you want but just consider it as it being a tool that you can use to pick something when you want to have lunch and not to be totally frozen by this feeling of eating your own tail and having no free will and everything is just overwhelming and out of your control and predetermined. But yet when you're talking about larger societal things, accepting the fact that there is no libertarian free will and using a slightly different model is much more useful in that context. Right. And I mean, if you think about it, what you're essentially saying there is the varieties of ramps that you can build, they're not limited to one specific type. So this conversation might be a ramp in the sense that it makes some set of people more likely to react less badly the next time they're cut off in traffic. That's a kind of ramp, right? You've set a cause in motion and it's going to cause a bunch of people to act differently. But also, you know, instituting a new 10-year plan for the economy, that is another kind of ramp. Instituting a home that helps people with gambling disorders overcome them. That is a kind of ramp that you're building for those people. So it's just to say that what we traditionally think of as disincentives or incentives doesn't have to only be at the level of big macroeconomic policy or something. It can also just be on the very local level. And what you're getting at is that like some descriptions at some levels are more useful than others. And this is the point that Sean Carroll really hits on, right? Is It's not useful to think of the car as a set of quarks and gluons, right? It's, it's just useful to think of it as this big, robust object that's continuous in time. And something we've mentioned before, right, is it's just the difference between the map and the territory. There's a useful map that represents all of the quarks and gluons, and we call that car. And we can, in the same way, have a map of reality and what it means to be an agent. And it doesn't have to include all of the variables. It doesn't have to include the fact that it's deterministic. We can just act as if there were a set of options, but base reality is what it is. So when, when that doesn't work out for you, you can retrospectively realize, well, I wish it were otherwise, but this is how it's panned out. That, that's the compassionate view we've been talking about. Absolutely. And then here's where it gets freaky, is I made a, a little throwaway reference to our conversation about Don Hoffman's view that reality isn't, and that humans are more likely to have evolved fictional but useful models of the world than accurate ones. And if there's a, you know, we go into this deeply in a, in a previous episode, link in the show notes. But where this gets freaky is that now this illusion of free will starts potentially making some evolutionary sense. 
something that has a model of itself as an agent that makes choices and satisfies its utility function best is probably more likely to survive, thrive, and reproduce than something that tries to model base reality of just being a deterministic cog and viewing everything else as a deterministic cog. And maybe that is why free will feels like a thing we have and feels like the reality that we find ourselves in. Because it is actually useful. Because we can have this whole conversation, but then we walk away from this and for 99% of our day, we will feel like agents that have free will. But that is in some sense just an illusion. But it's a very useful illusion for most practical daily purposes. But what we are saying here is that don't be fooled into thinking that is base reality and don't make the mistake of treating every situation or every problem or every challenge with that same view of I am an agent, you are an agent, and I just need to maximize my own utility. Because sometimes the way to maximize your own utility is to model the people around you as having no agency at all in the sense that you need to build better societal ramps for them, or we all do, for each other. And I think that ties together many loops from both discussions quite nicely. It's like we, we have some sense of why this may have come about, some useful evidence and arguments as to why it's not the underlying reality, and then some good reasons and practical applications for how it's still useful to feel like we have agency and control and model ourselves as though we do most of the time, but not always, if we want things to improve for all of humanity. Well, I mean, I think that's almost the sort of perfect note to wrap this up on. Well, it's not quite the perfect note. The perfect note would be to say that, like, yes, so you, you, you don't really choose what it is that you want and what thoughts come into your head, but you, you have the agency to do whatever you want with that information in some sense. But we hope that what you choose to do with that information is share this podcast with people who might find it interesting. Because as an agent satisfying your utility function, that would also most satisfy us as the hosts of this podcast. And it would very much benefit us because... With podcasts, the, the only way people really find out about them is through sharing it. So if there's someone who you think would really benefit from conversations like this, please do share because we really like doing this. And if the podcast keeps growing, we can afford to keep doing this. So that's true. Or from another way of putting that, causally, we hope that we've actually created something that causes the brains of human beings to enjoy it and want to share it. <laughs> elegantly said there we go this has been a very fun conversation thank you very much thank you sir until next time